if you have the opportunity to step inside a company either funded or or just join a company with whom you share the same vision and the same like values i think it's a very good opportunity for your personal and professional growth Christina Alessandri Munos is co-founder of Bound for Blue, a company that has developed a rigid wing sail system for boats that helps vessels save on fuel costs by using the wind to boost its engines. In this episode, we cover how Christina ended up in the engineering field, why she decided to enter the maritime space with co-founding Bound for Blue, the future she sees for the shipping and maritime industry, and her best advice for others who want to become entrepreneurs. All opinions expressed by Christopher Warnheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Warnheim. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Warnheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Just when you were growing up, I read you were quoted that you didn't envision yourself being an engineer. You started having a teaching aspirations and then about uh, going to the doctor field. Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing and what you thought you were meant to do? So I think that when I was very young, like being a teacher was the dream of my mother. And uh, when, when you're young, you tend to get uh, dreams that are not yours. But then when I started growing up, um, I spent, unfortunately, a lot of time like with my uh, grandfather at the hospital. So I realized how many times those doctors saved my grandfather's life. So for me, it was like, I want to become a doctor because the only way like to make good in this life with your job is saving lives. But then later work, so I started studying like uh, biology and uh, chemics and physics and so on, just to become a doctor. Then I realized uh, that uh, just some months uh, before like choosing my university studies, that in fact, what really made me uh, right in my eyes and that really was something that inspired me was solving problems. And then I had this teacher, um, which was also an engineer, like, telling me, hey, Christina, maybe you should study engineering. There's also a way to make good in life and, and have an impact in this world throughout the engineering. And that's what I did. So I started aeronautical engineering, um, and, and that was like my, my first uh, decision towards my like, studies and what I'm doing today. Just talking about engineering and those types of, let's call them hard subjects at school, do you think too many people quit too early because they initially find it hard to to deal with the subject and then they suddenly fall off because they're saying, okay, it's not for me? Or do you think like more people should have dived a bit more into the subject in order to solve some puzzles and then they would find the fields to be super interesting, right? Because many people maybe shy away because the subject matters can be a bit too a bit hard at the start at least. I think it's a little bit all together. Uh, I mean, there's people that go to engineering because they're very good students. And then it's, oh, why should you study maybe any other career, which is not technical because you're so brilliant and uh, the world needs uh, this intelligence. So, so they force you a little bit to study engineering. So I had a lot of friends leaving engineering because of this purpose and going to a more social uh, university studies but because that was in reality their dream but because they were too young when they decided to study engineering they did not realize then we also have people like the first years of engineering uh, are very hard they're very like they're setting the solid and the base and it's pretty similar to whatever type of engineering so maybe i'm sure that i was doing aeronautical engineering but uh, industrial engineering they were doing just the same subjects with another name but the same subjects and then until you get maybe to the fifth year, you, you don't start realizing how much you can do with these, uh, with these subjects. And, and I would say that even when you finish university, you still feel like, okay, maybe I don't know anything and maybe this wasn't what I was intended to study at the beginning. But then later you see that you have like the, the tools to really realize what you have in your mind. And like, it, it, it doesn't matter if you made aeronautical engineering, industrial, uh, naval engineering. And at the end of the day, like you are prepared. You don't realize, I think, until you end. So people leave in the meantime. And, and there's also one thing, like 
people that go to engineering tend to be very good students, so tend to have like 10 over 10. And then when you get to university and you realize you're not getting 10, but maybe three or four or, or even five, that five is uh, very high for you, right? So, so I think there's this demotivation behind like what is happening here. Maybe this is not meant to be for me. And, and that's not the, the thing you should tell yourself. It's maybe you're not supposed to get a 10 and you're supposed to really push harder in these uh, subjects, like push your limits, right? Maybe before it was too easy for you. So I think it's a matter of how you envision what you're experiencing at that moment. Very true. What draw you towards the aerospace industry at the beginning, at least? I wasn't a big lover of anything related to aerospace. I would love to, to say it like my colleagues at the university, they knew all the names of everything. Uh, I didn't. It was just a matter of looking at all engineering careers. And uh, I, I knew that uh, more like electronics and so on wasn't going to be for me. And then I had the help of uh, that teacher that I mentioned before that studied engineering and, and she helped me throughout the way like to choose it. I, I could have gone to industrial engineering. I would have been happy with that, uh, naval engineering too. I just ended up in uh, aeronautical engineering and I mean, I'm happy with that. So, so I, I, I didn't thought it that much. It, it felt cool. It felt that I would love it. And I just stepped inside that uh, career, yeah. So talk a bit about the journey towards the shipping and maritime industry because you're involved in a company bound for blue. So how how would you summarize the founding journey? Because obviously you have co-founders as well. So what is sort of the, the journey there and how the company started? So my co-founders are two aeronautical engineers. So Jose Miguel and David, they also studied from the university but they're uh, five years older. So they, they studied together, they, they launched and they were part of the funding team of um, aerospace uh, startup. So they worked uh, together there uh, throughout these five years while I was studying. In fact, I was just starting uh, my university studies when they started working in real life, like in the startup. Um, and then we met because we're a small bunch of aeronautical engineers. So we're less than 100 and we know each other there. It's a very, like very small uh, community. And I was able to meet them. Uh, and then later when I finished, I had to do my master uh, project. Um, and Jose Miguel had this uh, fabulous idea. It was much more optimistic than, uh, or ambitious, I would say, not optimistic, ambitious than what we are doing today. That it was a vessel just propelled by sails. Uh, to generate energy in a renewable way in the forms of hydrogen. So that was my, my final project uh, that I delivered. And then that was the moment when we started launching the company. And then afterwards, we realized that part of this energy production system, which were the same, were marketable by itself. So that uh, could solve one of the hardest problems of shipping, which is energy requirements. And obviously the cost associated to this energy and all the compliance with regulations. So we started phasing out the project and it's right now what we are doing. So I think we didn't thought very much that we were entering an industry which we had no idea about and no experience on it. Uh, it was just, I think we're engineers. So it was just, okay, there's a problem. We have a solution. Doesn't matter where it comes from. And, and bringing this solution from, from the aeronautical knowledge that we had been uh, really gaining throughout the, the last year. So, so that was like the approximation to the shipping industry, really not thinking too much how, how much different it was from aeronautical. Obviously, decarbonization is on top of everyone's minds, it seems, today. But when you guys started, how high was it on the agenda? Have you seen a big shift towards people are much more interested in looking at new technologies today? Or was it still very interesting uh, back when you guys started? Or have you seen a dramatic shift in sort of the attention these new technologies get from companies? I think we started in the best moment. If we had started before, I think we would, we would have arrived to the market uh, too early and maybe the market would have not been uh, really open to this type of technology. So I think it's a matter of, first of all, regulations or regulations have been uh, set very strictly uh, throughout the, the years. When we started, uh, even what, uh, the ban of heavy fuel oil, was not set for 2020. So we, we launched a company in 2015. Then they moved the ban to 2020 and we realized that regulations were getting stronger and that maybe we should focus much more on, on the application of the sales for reduction of uh, fuel consumption on maritime transport. 
Um, and then obviously there's the thing that you obviously see that regulations are far away and, and that's something that people also see in their daily lives. Okay, I have to switch from one car which is using gasoline to electric to enter my main city. This is something that also happens. You tend to postpone these investments as, as much as you can. And it's like, okay, it's far away. And then when it arrives, obviously you're open to whatever type of technology and you have to try. So I think that shipping is, although it's conservative, I would say that big, uh, innovations have had have happened in shipping so they're not that conservative as people think um, I just think that they are more focused on fuel and not thinking about the energy problem which is something that has to change in their mind but I think they're very open to technology but the problem is at what cost so it's about the risk so how much risk am I taking with this type of technology so it although it was a technology that was proven in the 80s so rigid sales were, were developed in the 80s and were applied and uh, really did not uh, injure any sheep any person uh, did not uh, represent any major risk they are um, having a perception of a higher risk than what it was. Then when we installed the first technologies, then we proved that it was safe and then they're much more open. And then that's about building trust also in the market about this type of technology, then other companies also entering into the market or that entered before really showing that, that there's no risk. And in fact, I think that they're perceiving that there's much higher risk of not doing nothing than of trying new technologies. And I think this is driven also by regulation. So in the end, uh, regulation is coming. The only alternative is either on the go low steaming or you start applying technologies or uh, burning like uh, low sulfur fuel oil, but even renewable fuels right now. So, so it's about uh, this transition. No? So when we started in 2015, till today. So we're starting to see this change of the mindset. Obviously, at the beginning, they were not that open as they are today. And I think that's uh, a sum of a lot of things, not only the regulations, but us also proving that the technology works and it's safe. How would you describe the process from having, you know, an idea in theory and taking it out in practice? Because obviously you guys started with this theoretical idea and maybe you have the advantage that you didn't come from the shipping industry. You came from the, uh, another industry and saw a big opportunity. But to get that theory out in practice, what was sort of the biggest lessons? Because, you know, creating things in practice often comes with new challenges you couldn't envision only working in theory, I guess. So technologically speaking, uh, as engineers, we tend to think that the best technology is that one that's much more cooler and like really noble and like you have to reinvent the wheel and you don't. So that's one of our biggest lessons. So uh, sometimes it's making it simple. So, so that means uh, bringing the best solution in terms of efficiency, which is something that really inspires uh, engineers, like having best efficiency, but in the, at the end of the day, someone has to pay for it. So it's about cost. So that's another big lesson that we had as engineers at that moment when we started is, okay, someone has to pay for it. And this has to be not only sustainable in the sense of uh, renewable so that you're saving fuel and thus saving emissions, but sustainable economically. So we, we like to speak about sustainability. And when we do, we, we are not just thinking about renewable aspects. We're thinking about also the economics. So it has to be sustained in the long term. So this is one of the lessons. Um, I would say that technically speaking, um, our big lesson too in engineering uh, was like scaling up. So we started making prototypes of small versions, uh, really smaller than me. Then we realized that when we scaled up to the, maybe the first real scale unit was 12 meters high. Um, it was very different. So, so in terms of manufacturing and timing and so on. So we could not scale up those assumptions. Um, and then we started building not prototypes, but models of the uh, final technology. So we developed internally in the company like an R&D facilities and have people here, me, myself, I also worked in the, those prototypes, like trying to figure out if really what we were envisioning in our computers could be done at the time that we calculated at the cost that we calculated and so on and that the people could be able to achieve and do and manufacture those uh, systems at the pace that the market needs so that was one of our biggest lessons too at the beginning not making prototypes but really building the big models and then um but that's not the uh, something we learned that the big hurdle was the investment part. So being an industrial company in an industry which was not very attractive for VCs at that time. So, so being able to attract attention to this market when 
M&As were not boosting, when everything was like shipping, you mean like very conservative, I've done nothing here, like and you're industrial, so maybe call me when you have customers and you have traction and this is not software, you know, like to have traction, you have to develop the technology and this technology really needs a lot of investment. So that was one of the biggest hurdles and problems like we had to, to go through at the beginning too. Yeah, because looking at funding, obviously everyone who has started a company know how hard and difficult it is to get funding. And like you said, when you're dealing with, you know, heavy asset industries, you need the funding to even build, you know, a prototype. You can't just code something on your computer. So what do you think was the biggest lessons doing this funding piece? And do you have any advice for other people who are trying to fund their projects? Is it a numbers game? You need to talk to as many as you can, or do you need to have a really good pitch in order to get people inspired and to truly understand the opportunity because fact of the matter is that if you are able to solve this problem, of course, the market is going to be huge because it's a huge industry. Shipping moves nearly every good in the world, right? So uh, I think that at the beginning, we that's another lesson maybe. We, we solved the company and the vision and the market and the opportunity, but it was not selling that in fact, what made us like close the first funding round, it was about ourselves. And we did not realize, or at least I did not realize until like three years later since we closed that funding round when I asked that first investor. And, and I asked him, why did you invest in us? We were crazy. We just had a PowerPoint and a very small prototype, which I could wear in my hand. And, and he was like, Christina, I invested in you and in Jose Miguel and in David. So I invested in the team. It was about you, not about what you were going to achieve, which is something that also matched with another investor in one of the shareholders meeting that he presented himself and he said, okay, I invested here because I am investing in them. So even if they produced uh, chairs, I would have invested in them because I, I know that this company will go okay. So at the beginning, it's not about selling opportunity. It's about like, selling yourself i would say but uh, i'm not sure if that's very polite or correct but at least it's showing yourself and how you are that you are there for the long run that even you know it will be hard but that's your vision and that you're someone trustworthy so so that's the beginning of the investment part then we started applying for grants in the regional government of catalonia catalonia where we we first launched the company and we founded it then we moved the company to the cantabrian region because uh, they're like regional GDP is very affected because of the shipping related activities. We have their standard which is the famous shipyard. Then a lot of companies uh, decide also manufacturing and, and really delivering products there for ships. So the, we, we were able to, to get more public funding also from the government of Catalonia. Then we also got uh, funding from the government of Spain, plus obviously additional investors. So approximately like 60 to 70% of our uh, funding that we have uh, achieved is coming from private investors. Basically, uh, business angels uh, and family offices, no VC at that time. And um, these, these business um, angels are also coming from the shipping industry. So we have people from the oil and gas and so on. So charters and, and I think that's also very useful. They've also accompanied us like throughout the way they've invested several times in the, in the following uh, round. So, so they followed their, their investment. And that is also like giving confidence to the new investors that are coming up that this is something that is working and that we are delivering results because if the investors keep, the more professional investors which are dedicated to this are really following up and investing in further rounds, then that is showing that we are delivering what we said at the beginning. So, so right now we are in a new funding round. Uh, we, we have been approved uh, by the EIC, which is the European Innovation Council like acceleration program, around 10 million euros. So around one, one fourth of it, like 25% is uh, public and the other one is like coming into equity. So we are right now uh, searching uh, matching funds of around 7.9 more or less, like 8 million uh, to, to, to close the funding round throughout like these following months. So that's pretty interesting. And I think that the most difficult part is the first euro that enters your company, but then it's like really being able to deliver results. Uh, that's the most difficult part then afterwards. It's not about uh, closing, but if you're able to do what you told you were going to achieve with that money, then later words, other investors uh, are following. 
Talking a bit about the the shipping fleet, because obviously there are different types of vessels. And when you started, you know, piloting and getting clients, how did you envision sort of the first customer batch to be? Was it any specific vessels, any specific size? How did it look in terms of where you believe the return on investment would be the best? Because I guess that would differ and, you know, from the vessels through the routes they take, etc. So how does that customer roadmap look? So I think here it's, um, so it's not just about segments. So it's about, okay, what age is the fleet? Uh, what is the sailing uh, area? So where are they operating their fleet to? Because if they're operating in the Mediterranean, maybe it can be a cruise vessel. So they're going at a very high speed. So very high speed, very high fuel consumption. But then laterwards also you start analyzing that those ships are stopped at port because that's like their main operation. So people are visiting the cities, then they go sailing at high speed to another port. And you have like a lot of things. The route is not good in the Mediterranean, then they're not operating the fleet like at a very uh, high percentage. So maybe they're like 60% operating it. So payback will be smaller, obviously, because they're not using the technology to save fuel. They cannot use it on the port. So um, then you start nailing it a little bit more. It's not at the beginning, we thought, okay, then it's about uh, like when you think about market, you're thinking about geographically, maybe in shipping, you start thinking about types of vessels. But when you start thinking about installing sales, it's much more difficult, even when you look at the fleet. So you look at ship owners and then what percentage of their fleet uh, we are we able to install the sales because it will deliver a very good uh, return on investment for them. And, and then nailing that up, so 80% of the vessels, if you look at them, uh, can install the technology, physically speaking. But then if you go to the routes and so on, like around 60% could have a very good return on investment, like lower than five years. And, and then obviously there's like this sweet point maybe on bulkers, tankers, and, and so on. But that does not mean that you cannot install it on, on cruises or, or on railroads or, or on fishing vessels. Then how did we start it? So we didn't start it like with the big players. So we wanted to, at the beginning, uh, we, we didn't realize that much when we thought about this, but it was okay. We want to try and the first technology and to try, should we install more than one unit? It will take a lot of time. And if we fail in some sense, like we, we don't get the best technology, we're building three units. So, so we started thinking, let's go for smaller ships to try the technology because you will need less investment to try it and it will be much more easier. And if something does not work because it's, it's a minimum viable product, so you're installing it, you will improve it throughout the, the sea trials. And then if you have to improve it, you will substitute and so on. And, and it doesn't need the same investment to substitute one sale than to substitute three. And, and if you fail, you don't fail that hard because you're, you're trying. It's, it's about piloting. It was not a commercial like installation what we were looking for at the beginning. So, so it was also a, a very sweet spot on the fishing segment because they were the last ones to abandon wind. And today we have a lot of fishing uh, vessels sailing with wind, uh, very small uh, fisheries. But, but in the end, they know how wind works. So if they're very close to wind and they see it every day. So we, we found this uh, acceleration program in, in Galicia, in Vigo, and, and it was putting in touch, uh, it consisted of pushing, putting in touch fishing companies uh, with uh, suppliers of technology to their problems. And that was the ship owner that even before we launched the company, he was looking at solutions to install on their fleet because he was like, okay, I have wind, I'm, I'm sailing with good wind and I'm burning fuel. And at that moment they were burning uh, marine gas oil and it was before 2020, in fact, and at a very high price. So it was, it was like, I would love to, to be able to use this uh, wind but in an autonomous way and with a new solution and he was looking for it. So it was like, he was very open. So fishing was very open to win. And then they also got like subsidies to really make their fleet more renewable. And, and it was a very sweet spot to try. Like it was just one unit that we had to try, small unit, so we could build it quick. We could have someone there. So we had one of our team, uh, one of my teammates have been, uh, has been one year in that fishing vessel. Maybe you should interview him. That would be very nice. It's a very good experience. So, so improving the technology, the control system, the aerodynamics. And, and right now, for instance, we're building another unit for, for this uh, vessel because we've improved so many things throughout this year 
like around 30% of the efficiency we've improved uh, of, the, of the sale. And we're going to deliver this uh, unit for, for them also, because in the end, we want to prove also the mark to the market that um, who takes the risk also will get the best uh, like result in the end. So taking being the first one to take the risk implies that we will be there also to, to make some changes on, on the technology if we improve it in the meantime. So I, I would say that was what, how we started approaching the market. Obviously, then there were problems because uh, the problems you have in fishing, you don't have it in the cargo segment. So you have this more stability problems. Then that implies also weight problems. So we had to modify materials to use more aluminum. Then you also have problems in manufacturing. Uh, it's not about problems, it's challenges, maybe. So, so it's about more challenging project in, in other way. It was not three units, one unit, that's more easy, but then you have other challenges which we didn't contemplate at the time. Definitely. If you, if you look at ship owners and shipping CEOs, they of course want to lower their fuel consumption because it's all about having the lowest cost possible, right? So in your best case scenario, how much you know do you think you can save on fuel consumption if you really get to maximize these renewable technologies like wind, of course, so you guys are working on? So the other day we made um, a preliminary analysis for a gas carrier, a new build, and, and the fuel savings were so big that we, we even didn't uh, consider they were true at that moment. It was like, that's impossible. There's something wrong that we've uh, introduced in our software. And it wasn't. It, they were performing very good goods. They were using the, the highest uh, units of 30 meters high. Um, and they were delivering like 40% fuel savings without using uh, improvements on the routes. So obviously you can improve and, and include weather routing to put up, up to 20% additional over the fuel savings achieved, but we were not adding anything there. So we, it was just because of the proportion delivered by the sales in the sailing area at the speed they were, uh, they were traveling. And, and I think that that's like a very good uh, business case. They were getting like payback below two and a half years which was very, very good. Um, you can go from like 5% in the worst case, even zero. I mean, if you're not using the, the wind or the Mediterranean, and it's like very, very bad case, but maybe to 30, that would be something reasonable. Then in an average, like 15, 20% of the energy can be delivered by wind without modifying the routes and so on, like just by sailing as always. When you say modifying and improving the routes for people who aren't familiar with the, the case, what do you mean in, in practice? So if you go from port A to port B, you follow a certain route, which is like the normal route you would follow, but then you can like follow the winds like uh, Cristobal Columbus did. And, and obviously you can get better winds, so you can get higher savings if you're just going to catch those best winds. That means you're not just using those winds that are available for you and doing your best with that, but rather going to find those that will really deliver the best proportion. Sometimes that can mean that the, there is an increase on the time to, to get to the place. So there's also an increase of the cost of the, the crew and so on. So you have to really be able to, to match all those things, what you're getting from an additional saving that is not really uh, affecting with the additional increase of the timing. Sometimes if you, you are not in hurry to arrive to the port, it's not the case today, but, but if you are not with this hurry, maybe you can get better, uh, better routes. Sometimes getting better routes does not imply increasing the time because it can enable you to get at the same uh, speed, like at the same uh, time, I would say. So, so yeah, that's the meaning of going and catching like the best routes for you. It's like this way, yeah. yeah. Perfectly explained. So if you just look at the, the general debate in the shipping industry, there's so many technologies being you know, discussed from ammonia, hydrogen, LNG, maybe the safest uh, sort of like risk-free option right now. But in your mind, if you envision the shipping fleet, let's say 10, 15 years from now, because obviously the shipping industry is a bit slow because if you have a new vessel, it's usually you know, going to be here for 20 years, the minimum. So but how do you envision, you know, the future of the shipping fleet? Do you envision a future where it's 100% renewable? Or is it just about, you know, having 
as being as efficient as possible and using a wide spread of opportunities? Or do you see like a silver bullet or technology where you think like the state of the art vessel should be like this? So I'm one of those who, who thinks that it will be a combination of technology. So it's very difficult for shipping to think only about renewable fuels, because in the end, if you look at the, about the renewable fuels that are produced today, like I think it was around 14%. That was something that Martin Stopfer said in the press conference of the SMM. And it hasn't grown that much. So it's pretty stable, the production of renewable fuels. And if we're trying to think about hydrogen, like more than 95% of this hydrogen, I think it was 97 or 96% of the hydrogen is produced throughout gas, natural gas. So, so the problem is that it's not renewable. And what you're only doing is displacing emissions up to the production chain. And, and that is not sustainable. So yes, you're not polluting in the oceans, but you're polluting elsewhere. And, and even I would say not worse, but you're polluting just beside the people too. So, so what, what's the point on that, on, on switching to renewable fuels? And then about the, the effect of having these 14% renewable fuels, the question is, will shipping be able to, to go to the market and be the first ones to get these renewable fuels? And for me, the answer is no. They will not be the first ones to get there. There are also other industries that have much more force to be able to access these renewable fuels. And then another thing is, there's never nothing more sustainable than using wind directly in, in our case, obviously. So if you're thinking about producing maybe hydrogen uh, with the electrolysis of water and the energy from coming from renewable sources like wind, with the wind powers, then there's a loss of efficiency than using it directly. Then you also have to invest a lot in infrastructure and you have like this classic egg and chicken situation. So what is the fuel of the future and who is going to invest in this infrastructure if the fuel is yet not clear? So, so why am I going to invest so much and then the money to invest in this new infrastructure and also to retrofit the existing fleet? So I would say that it's a combination of a lot of technologies. Wind by itself, obviously you can go with wind like we did centuries ago, but that would have a problem, operational problem in the end, increase of time to deliver those goods. And we as people, we want everything immediately today. Like we want it right now. I've just bought it and in five minutes I want it delivered. So we cannot sustain this, but we can obviously have technologies today that can make shipping sustainable. So you have wind, it can provide like around 20 to 30% of energy required to have operational changes. So I think it was a colleague who told me like only, but I'm not sure about this, but maybe you should know better than me, but only 20% of the fleet is sensorized. So they're getting data, analyzing it and looking at improving the efficiency. And with that, you can get like, obviously not double digit fuel savings, but you can save a lot of fuel at the end of the day. So it's about adding up a lot of technologies or not. It doesn't have to be hardware. It can be software, new designs and so on. And then the rest can be delivered by these renewable fuels or at least the net zero. I mean, if you want, it's not the best solution because as I said, it doesn't matter the pollution will be there. But I mean, if there's nothing better in the short run, then that's useful too. And if we're thinking about technologies and just putting all RX in one basket, because only thinking about renewable fuels, we must think that if we're able to make more efficient our fleet, is, is it with wind? Is it with the software? At the end of the day, we're using less renewable fuels and renewable fuels, the demand will go up, but supply will be tight. And, and in the end, what we're doing is making with these renewable fuels, we're able to decarbonize more ships with this limit amount rather than if we don't nothing on this fleet to make it more efficient. So if we're able to have less uh, consumption of this fuel, then we have more vessels that can go in, in a renewable way. So in the long run, um, I hope as a world uh, itself uh, that we will achieve this renewable energy at an efficient cost that is sustainable for everyone. Um, in the short run, I think that uh, wind is also there. And in the end, in the future, I mean, these renewable fuels are expected to cost between three and 10 times more. So, so in the end, whatever thing that makes you save this uh, cost is, is, is a good solution also in the long run. But right now, wind is a, a good strategy for, for even wind or software. It's a good strategy for, for ship owners to really decarbonize a little bit more their ships and 
be able to, to really uh, adapt their fleets to the new regulations. We're coming up with EXI, then CII, and so on and so on. And, and WIND is there to, to assist, and it's available, it's free. And, and also, if you use it, you have this thing that you're not so subject to, to price volatility. You have right now an increase of fuel price today, but WIND is free. So you're able to really make it more stable, those operational costs. Uh, related to the, the rest of the fuel that you're using because you, one part of this fuel is being delivered by something that is free and it's not volatile. Given this environment, do you feel like people have sort of stopped from only talking about this and, and started to execute it? Or do you still feel feels there's like room to grow to execute and really try out this technology, given that you are in so many meetings and, you know, presenting this technology? Because obviously it's been on many slide decks, decarbonization slide is everywhere, right? But do you feel like people are also taking big action on it? Or is it just right now mostly talking? I, I think there's... Um... A lot of everything. So at the beginning, it was like more talking, I would say, and like only speaking about digitalization. I was like, okay, let's move forward. So digitalization is okay, let's uh, approach that. Then now sustainability is like the new wave of what every, everyone is talking about. And we're seeing a lot of ship owners like embracing the technology. We had like an increase of 350% of organic inquiries from ship owners in the last uh, quarter just asking for an invoice, like, well, um, a quotation, not an invoice, a quotation, and, and, and really looking forward to, to install this type of technology and open. So, so that's something very positive, but I'm also like, uh, I wasn't in Posidonia, but I read on the maritime news that there were ship owners like saying, we will be the last ones to, to deploy this type of technology. It's not win, but like, we will wait until everyone or someone proves that uh, this is the technology that uh, will be useful or that is useful, then we will go for it. So not willing to take the risk, I would say. So I think there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of greenwashing, like in all, the, all industries. It's not just about uh, shipping, like people saying they want to be sustainable. They have a lot of benefits and maybe they're not investing in sustainable solutions and taking a little bit of risk. Um, but there are others that are pushing. So I think that's pretty similar to what's happening in other industries. Uh, I think it's not just about shipping. It's, it's generally speaking, you always have like the first early adopters and you have this uh, adoption technology, then you have the late laggards. And, and that's a natural thing. Not, not all the industry will be uh, open to, to install a novel technology. It's something normal. I, I, I wouldn't bother about it too much. What I'm seeing throughout all this journey since we started is a very big transition. So I was in 2020 speaking about wind and it was in the also an advanced press conference of the SMM, which was late towards postponed, but, but I was speaking about wind and then I came in 2022 again and everyone was speaking about wind, not only me. So that was very useful and, and very good to see like that the, the, really the, the industry is moving. I would love to see it moving at a much faster pace, maybe because I'm, I'm younger and I'm much more energetic and I want to see the changes from one day to another. I don't know, maybe it's me, myself, because I want to see these changes uh, going very fast. Um, but I think changes are, are going, going on and, and the industry is moving forward a lot, like generally speaking. Just one last question on, on the product side, because I, I thought about it just recently, and that is uh, in terms of the design, right? Because if you look at Tesla case study, it actually proved that one of the key insights was that people actually care about have a sustainable car or vessel, I guess, look, right? So how important has it been to create something that actually looks good on the, on the ship as well? Has it not been a focus at all? Or do you think like design actually matters that people want to install these pretty, you know, visible sails on their ships? So for us, it was the first thing was safety. So we wanted to build something that was safe. And, and then we, we started engaging with the class societies and following all the more strictive regulations that the, they were launching. So safety was the utmost important thing for us. Um, the aesthetics was also important. So we were not going to set anything that was ugly by itself, uh, but that was not the, the, the first thing. Uh, we realized that the industry where we were approaching our product, uh, obviously, Everyone loves to see nice things. I myself love art. 
by itself. So, so I understand that people want to see beautiful things like Apple and, and so on, but it was not the most important thing. The most important was safety, that it delivered these results, that it was practical, so it was autonomous, that it didn't imply additional costs, low operating expenses, blah, blah, blah. Then moving forward, statics. And if safety was first and something was not that static because of safety, safety went first. So, so that was like our, our, our way of thinking. So something that was useful that, uh, and safe and that did deliver results at an economical way of, of approaching the technology. Because sometimes, as I said before, you think about sustainability and you think it will be expensive. So uh, one of the most important things for us was not making this technology expensive. So being able to, to really nail all the mechanisms, the manufacturing costs and so on. And then in the end, making it nice. So yeah, of course, of course. And I think by itself, these types of technologies are nice. They, they are good looking. So there are like less than 16 vessels in the world uh, with this type of technologies. And, and that's cool. I mean, they're special. So, so we still have a lot of work to do to have like all the fleet as, or, or as much uh, vessels as we can with uh, our technology installed with wind power. But, uh, but in the end, they look nice. Definitely. Just uh, talking a bit about, about the more general topic, you know, being an entrepreneur, because it is a special lifestyle. So, I mean, you lived this life quite some years right now. How would you compare the entrepreneurship lifestyle versus the ones you're seeing maybe friends having in the corporate world? Because I'm pretty sure many people find your journey inspiring and are thinking about, should I jump out? Should I join a company, a startup, etc.? What is sort of your general view on the entrepreneurship path, which obviously comes with a bit more volatility in life? You know, things go up and down a bit more, but how, how is your general sense on, on the lifestyle you get as an entrepreneur? So I think like if we speak about uh, the three dimensions of the person, like you have like this more extrinsic part, and it's like about being able to, to make good in the world. So shipping is the backbone of the global economy. And, and I cannot imagine any better industry to go there, step inside and generate impact. Obviously, in my case, sustainability is something that really concerned me. So, so being able to be involved in a sustainable solution is, is something very, very exciting. So then you have this more um, intrinsic part so the growth that you you are experimenting no so so that's something that i would have not been able to to really in the same amount of time to experience so shipping something that i love about is that it's global and because it's global you're able to to meet people like today i'm talking with you and maybe i wouldn't have been able to to meet you if, even if I would have stepped inside the shipping industry in a very big uh, company, because I mean, what, what would I be doing here? So, so the thing is, I'm meeting people all around the world, not only about the ship, uh, related to the shipping industry, but related to entrepreneurship and sustainability, energy segment, uh, healthcare too. So, so that's a very different community, like that's building Europe, uh, also in the US, and and like widening my 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 relationships also like pushing me towards the limit because um here uh, if you make something and it wasn't a good decision you will see it the next day or immediately if you're in a big company and you take a decision it will be hard until you make the decision it will take time but when you take it sometimes you're not able to see the impact so you're not learning so the next time you might take the same decision or not but you will not take it with previous information. So, so you're not growing professionally, but, but neither personally. And I think here another thing is like being able to be from the very beginning, from idea to reality. So we were just three ourselves, started building the team, closing agreements, started selling. Like I'm involved in all areas. I, I abandoned more of the technical uh, part a lot of years ago, but in the rest, I'm, I'm I, very involved, like raising funds. That that's something I would not have experienced as as an engineer by itself. Like uh, speaking uh, all around the world in the European uh, Union, in the COP twenty four too. I mean, that's something like very very exciting too. So I would say like if you have the opportunity to step inside a company either funded or or just join a company with whom you share the same vision and the same like values. I think it's a very good opportunity for your personal and professional growth, for, for sure. 
couldn't agree more. And I also read that you have a deep passion about, you know, sharing this knowledge to other people and sort of being a mentor to other people coming up. How have you find that, you know, the ability to pay it forward to other and also be available for, you know, younger generation or younger people who want to, you know, learn more about, you know, this lifestyle, basically? So, yeah, I'm involved, like, in two ways, more in the gender equality, if you would name it that way, because I think that I, I was very fortunate to be raised in a family that really empowered me to, to do whatever I wanted. I did not realize that uh, as a woman, I had some uh, maybe problems uh, in, in the corporate world and so on until I stepped inside the corporate world because I was like in my small shell, being very empowered by my family. And then afterwards, I realized that there were a lot of problems. I saw in university that we were only 10% of the class was female. So I, if I want to change things, I have to be there too. So I have to give to the world what I have received also from the world, which is this empowerment. So I remember last week going to a class of 120 girls. Uh, I think they were like around 15, 14 years old and speaking about the shipping industry and, and the technology and really telling them that if they wanted, they could become engineers, that they could also be involved in technology while being in, in business to like explaining what my experience i think we all have to do this like for for society it's like a duty to to really bring something to the table um and then I'm also i'm involved in more of the entrepreneurial part so i think we've we've been helped by a lot of people throughout the way um without any other interest than to help and and to to help us grow and and that is something that i also want to to pay back to, to the next people that are launching their company. So I'm, I'm also very happy to talk with people and help them as much as I can. And, and also I would say that I learn a lot from those conversations. So, so I'm very involved in like a lot of communities in the entrepreneurial uh, like type of programs. And, and we help us a lot. Like, hey, you should look at that. Maybe I could approach you to this person. And, and that's also very good too. So, so it's about helping us each other to build a better world it's very good i think it's super important uh, the job you do because role models matters a lot right so if you're young and you can look up to someone and also you know get um get to know them that's usually super helpful i just i had one like a story i found doing the research which i thought was was interesting to ask you about because it shows at least a, a big bias towards action it was it was something about a pastry story where we basically had this uh, project of learning how to to become great at pastries do you mind telling that story Okay, so, so that's something very special for me. So um, I had like a very bad moment in my life when I was studying university. I lost the, the person that I, I loved the most. Um, he well, she died. Um, and I found in pastry, like it was like doing yoga or something. It was my moment and the way I, I put all my energy bad and good there. So when I finished my studies before launching Bound for Blue, I had the opportunity uh, to work with uh, the, the best uh, pastry chef in the world. Um, that he, he uh, well, everything I learned was from him. And it was uh, very cool because it was like experiencing what I loved also because I loved art. And for me, pastry is a way of doing art. He did like, um, well, he was the best. So he did very fancy things, but very like chemistry and, and going to the limit to the formulation. Like it was very cool to be with him and, and very, very, I mean, very nice the way he empowered the team to, I, I learned a lot about like teamwork there and not only about pastry. So for me, pastry is something very special. As I mentioned before, I love art. Pastry is a way of doing art and also a way of doing good in the world. So um, sometimes people tend to think I was speaking with, with some university students yesterday at, at like a conference that they, they asked me to, to deliver. And, and they think that engineering like is the only way or technology is the only way to do good in the world. And I would say that even pastry, I mean, you're able to be in the best moments of people in their lives and, and, and be there at some in some way in like with them with the sweet uh, pastry so so i think it's also a good way of doing things like a more uh, healthy uh, food to eat really this innovation behind uh, building good teams and and sustainable like i mean in, in the end so solutions business and so on so so yeah it was very nice for me to to be part of that i moved to bound for blue obviously that was my dream uh, but it was a very good experience and I learned a lot.
not only about pastry. I love, I love. Yeah, but, but I think it, the interesting part of that story as well is that you can learn so much, you know, you can learn a lot from different industries as well, right? You don't have to be so sector specific your whole life. Usually there's great, you know, lessons learned in other industries as well, especially those who try to really put things at the high level. So I think that's also, you know, a, a great advice for other people to to try out and experiment because you can learn so many new things that you didn't envision before, you know, you entered a new field, right? That That's basically, I would say, the thing in common uh, about pastry and like Bounce Blue. Uh, if you go to pastry, everyone is doing always the same recipes, like French recipes with a lot of butter and sugar. And like, it's very uh, conservative in that sense. We are doing business as usual, you mean? And when you're going to shipping, it's like, okay, we burn fuel, we deliver the goods, here's the, how the operation goes. And maybe... Like disrupting an industry, they were disrupting the, the pastry like sector. And, and we were coming also to like disrupt a little bit too by, maybe I, I said a little bit because sailing was used centuries ago, but bringing new technology to and like breaking how, how things are, have been done uh, throughout the last years. So, so yeah, I think that's uh, something very nice to, to really like. Definitely. You know, uh, Christina, there was only one question I asked you to prepare, so I'll, I'll ask it at the, at the end. I asked about your favorite book you read. Did, did you come up with a great answer to the audience? Uh, no, that great. I love reading. So throughout these two years with a master's, I've been doing a master's on, on the weekends. Um, I've read a lot of business books. So um, I finished like around two months ago. And the last book I read, uh, which was very nice, uh, was the, uh, in Spanish, El Hombre en Busca de la Felicidad. So in English, The Man in Search of uh, Meaning, or, yeah. So about, it's from Victor Flank, and it's about the Holocaust and, and, and in Auschwitz. And it's about how you really, as a, as a person, you can do, it's not about the circumstances that, in, like that surround you, that make you do the things that you do. It's about you yourself being on top of these circumstances and really moving forward. So it's more about psychology and it's very, I wouldn't say nice, it's very hard to read, but I think that the meaning that you get behind, it's very nice and that you can apply it on your daily life. And right now I'm reading The Courage to be Disliked. Um, I'm reading it in Spanish. <laughs> But, but it's in English to this book. And it's like a Socratic dialogue um, between like a young person and a, um, oh, what's the name, a philosopher. So, so they're going throughout a lot of like uh, philosophy theories like Freud and like Alfred Adler. And like it's, they're setting some questions for the reader to, to solve in their daily life too. It's like, it's, it's nice. I'm liking it, that one. So I wouldn't choose one book because I think that life is uh, too long to have just one favorite book, but uh, I would recommend those. Yeah, for sure. That's perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on and hope we can do it again in the future. Sure. Thank you very much. If you like this episode and the content we produce, you need to check out our newsletter called the Fransen and Wohnheim Letter. You can find more information in the show notes. And also, if you want to see this episode, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Vonheim. See you next time.